0: It's uh, tutorial time. We're kicking off the new year with a deep dive into the mining industry. Yeah, I know, mining you say, mining, really? This is an ancient industry that's literally out of sight and out of mind. And frankly, for most people, it's hardly top of any list of exciting things to talk about at the beginning of a new year. But to quote a famous politician, here's the deal. Pretty much everything about what will happen in energy domains in this coming decade will be determined by the global metals mining industries. So, so let me explain, So, and then we'll get into the tutorial about mining. Uh, let's start with the now seemingly universal policy goal, uh, or in the Western world at least, which is that... Every country, from an energy perspective, should aspire to become Norway. Norway. I'll tell you what I mean by that. So let's consider a few facts, a little factoids about Norway. Uh, Norway, this last year, saw 80% of all new car sales as EVs. 80%. Every new car purchased in Norway was an EV. 90% of Norway's electricity comes from renewables. And more than half of all primary energy supplying the country of Norway directly is renewable. Uh, That is, in a nutshell, the international energy agencies, the U.S. policy, the German policy. That's what everybody wants to do. Everybody wants to be Norwegian. Um, You remember that famous line that President Kennedy said during the Cold War, it could be a nine Berliner, wanna be a Berliner. Yeah, I wanna be a Norwegian. That seems to be the energy policy of the decade. Of course, Norway has a couple of advantages. It's not exactly a big country. It's just 5 million people. Uh, it's pretty rich. It has, uh, it's, it's richer per capita than the United States. It has a GDP per capita, 700% higher than the world average. I mean, in fact, Norway has another advantage. Uh, They're a big oil and gas producer. In fact, measured in per capita terms, Norway sells to the world $25,000 per year per capita uh, of oil and gas. And in fact, Norway's oil and gas companies uh, distribute a dividend to every Norwegian citizen every year, uh, a share of the profits from those $25,000 per year of revenues from selling oil and gas to the world. So a detail, but actually that's a detail that I'm going to talk about because in effect, what Norway is doing is financing its um, top-line energy transition aspirations through the sale of oil and gas to the rest of the world uh, on the advantage of being a very wealthy country with very few people. That's about the population of Manhattan or Houston, depending on your proclivities here. And of course, the renewable uh, energy that uh, Norway has has the geographic advantage of being entirely, uh, almost 100%, almost. So virtually all of the 90% of the electric supply of Norway is hydropower, which is a long-lived, low-cost, base load form of energy, unlike wind and solar, which the rest of the world are pursuing, which is a short-lived, episodic form of energy. In fact, put in in, in concrete terms, the two things we really want to talk about is the fact that uh, for every dollar spent on the hydro dam, you know, you get energy that's available essentially 90% of the time for a century. For every dollar spent in wind and solar, which is what the rest of the world is pursuing, you get a third as much energy on average over the year, and you get machines that last a third as long, or put in very simply energy economic terms, uh, it's an alternative that's roughly 10 times more expensive than uh, hydro dams. Ah. As they say, whatever, it's just build more of them, right? And here's the other fact. For every uh, electric vehicle that uh, Norway is importing, they have essentially exported 25 barrels of oil equivalent of energy to manufacture that electric vehicle, most of which is associated with the energy used in the mining industry to manufacture the metals needed and materials needed and the minerals needed to make the lithium batteries for that electric vehicle. And that's the nub of the story. That's the nub of the reality that we, we need to uh, to think about. This is why, by the way, uh, this is really the, that by this, I mean the energy aspirations uh, of the world right now are really a mining story. Uh, the world, again, for calibration, for everybody to have in their, their heads, the starting point, and I wanna repeat this fact, I keep repeating it and I have mentioned it previous podcasts. The starting point is where we are 20 years after spending globally $5 trillion and change on avoiding hydrocarbons, where we are today is the world gets about 3% of its total energy. It's not electricity, total energy from wind and solar. The United States, the number is a little over 4%. And uh, total new car sales globally that are EVs are about 10%, not nothing, but it's not like Norway. And again, for calibration globally, the share of world energy come from burning wood, the oldest source of energy, uh, is three times greater than all the wind and solar panels combined globally. So the world has not exactly uh, rapidly transitioned in the last 20 years after $5 trillion to avoiding either wood particularly or oil, gas, and coal. But we're spending a lot of money trying. Let's just be clear about that. In fact, uh, the year-end data from the you know, Bloomberg, Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, made it very clear that uh, the enthusiasms of not investors as much, and investors too, as governments uh, knows no bounds. I mean, the the total global spending on uh, the quote, energy transition over the last decade has risen from about $250 billion a year to now just shy of $800 billion a year by Western governments. And most of that is on wind and solar, and batteries. There's uh, some of it's on biofuels and skosh, There's a smidgen on if you know things like uh, hydrogen, and you could put nuclear energy in the bucket, but they're they're tr- trivial compared to the magnitude of money directly and indirectly being spent on wind and solar and batteries. So the mining piece. Here's where the mining piece comes in. The metals piece. This is a, a fact that I've written about and talked about before. It's starting to to show up in the general sort of discussion about energy transition aspirations. It's a fact that is uh, not a sort of uh, anti-energy transition fact. It's just a fact. The quantity of minerals and metals needed to produce wind machines, photovoltaics, solar panels, electric cars, the quantity of minerals needed to deliver the same product or service is far greater Associated with wind, solar, and batteries. than it is associated with combustion turbines, oil, gas, and coal. And it's a lot more—not just a little more. Uh, roughly speaking, uh, every electric car, compared to making a regular car, requires the production and use of about four or five hundred percent more metals. Dominantly, the dominant increase in metal consumptions is in copper and aluminum. By the way, but there's a lot, a lot more lithium. To, to state the obvious, there's almost no lithium, almost no I see essentially there's some some lithium in some classes of gla- glass but there's almost no lithium used in the conventional auto industry uh, you need a lot of lithium for lithium batteries beyond obvious but what's generally missed in the discussion is that every electric car produced requires about 300 to 400 percent more copper than a conventional car and it requires a roughly similar increase in aluminum compared to a conventional car. the increased use of aluminum, by the way, has to do with the fact that a battery weighs a half a ton to replace 80 pounds of gasoline. So you have to lightweight the rest of the vehicle by using aluminum. And of course, the increased use of copper is because it's an electric car. You need lots of copper conductors compared to the steel you use for drive shafts and things like that. Now, when it comes to solar and wind, the quantity of metals you need, including copper, but also the whole sort of suite of other metals, rare earths and lithium and zinc and cobalt, chromium, manganese, that kind of, a kind of bucket of metals, the increased quantity of metals that are needed to produce a unit of energy compared to conventional energy using solar and wind is somewhere between 1,000% and 7,000% more of the metals. Or overall, on average, you're roughly increasing the total call on metals per unit of energy delivered to society by on the order of 3,000%. So again, let's... Be clear about this, to deliver the same unit of energy to society, whether it's a mile of driving, an hour of heat, an hour of running a computer, an hour of lighting, to deliver the same unit of energy to society, the machines that have to be built to deliver that energy, if those machines are wind and solar machines with batteries, you increase the quantity of metals you need by about 2,000 to 3,000%. So that's significant. And, and it will have an impact, and the impact again. I'm, the data I'm giving you just to so you you don't think this is a shoot from the hip, <laughs> making numbers up kind of stuff. This comes from International Energy Agency, U.S. Geological Survey, other geological surveys around the world. It comes from engineering and geophysics. This has nothing to do with with a uh, you know a short term uh, uh, um, you know quirk in the nature of these machines. It's the nature of the machines. They're they're big machines made from lots of metals. They don't consume fuels directly. They consume fuels indirectly. Of course, you can't, you know, as we'll get to, you can't get all those metals and build those machines without burning oil and coal and gas, but the detail we'll come to in a second. This is locked into the nature of the machines. You need lots of metals. In fact, the IEA and others have gone on to calculate the total increase in demand globally for those metals if the energy transition goals are pursued and they are being pursued. So what you'd want to know is over the next 20 years, how much more graphite and cobalt do we need? How much more nickel? How much more How much more copper compared to the current level of global production of those metals? Well, we need about 700% more rare earths than are now being produced, about 2,000% more nickel than is now being produced, about the same percentage increase in cobalt, a couple thousand percent. We need about 3,000% more graphite, about 4,000% more more lithium that's now being produced, about 400% more copper that's now being produced. These are big increases, uh, huge huge increases in the demand. Uh, In fact, there are increases in demand that are greater than have ever occurred in modern history. In fact, probably in all of history over such a short time period and relevant to this is not just so the it's not just the question can we supply it but in supplying and trying to supply that that demand of metals we're also going to increase not only the stresses in the world mining industry but the energy the world's mining industry uses in fact most people don't know that mining globally today uses 40% of all industrial energy in the world so it's the biggest single energy consuming sector of the world and we're planning to meet the energy needs of the consumer in the future by increasing the size of the mining industry by levels and scales unprecedented in history. This this will have a number of consequences, uh, which let's talk about very briefly. First, it means that the physical quantity stuff that the world has to dig up and manage and move will increase, which has a whole set of consequences, economic, environmental, geopolitical. Let's just start with the, the quantities. The world today for all purposes, food, biomass to make things, construction materials, metals for all purposes, oil and gas measured in tons for all purposes. If we count the quantities of stuff that the world must acquire, move and process to keep civilization running, it's about a hundred billion tons, a hundred gigatons of stuff is, is dug up, grown, moved. And by the way, it's a, that's about a fourfold increase over where the world was um, in the pre-digital era, if you like, from 1970 to date. Over the last 50 years, the last half century, the world has gone from digging up and moving and processing you know, 25 gigatons of stuff of all kinds to about 100 gigatons. If we shift the world's energy supply from liquids and gases dominantly, oil and gas, to solids as so wind, solar, batteries, if we do that, we will increase the quantity of stuff the world has to dig up, move, and process by an amount equal to the entire level of gigatonnage of stuff we do for all other purposes. Put differently, it's a tenfold increase in the weight of things that the world has to dig up, move, and process to supply energy to keep things operating. This is significant. It's significant in all kinds of ways, not, not least economically, and of course, not least uh, environmentally, because every time you dig up, and move something, you consume energy. But let's first talk about, could we do it? Well, in theory, over time, yes, but the IEA has pointed out that the world uh, is gonna need to find ores and open up a new mines, hundreds of new mines, hundreds, not a few, not a few thousand, but hundreds. In fact, every forecast, From every agency that knows anything about the mining industry, every analyst in the mining industry, every analyst in the banking and the finance industry that follows mining knows this simple fact, which I'll state, is that for all of the metals, copper, aluminum, whether it's cobalt, whether it's manganese or zinc, the demands for all of those metals in the coming decade or two vastly exceeds the current planned or expected supply for any of the metals, and by huge margins, not just by a little bit. In fact, uh, S&P Global put out a study last year just on copper, and they reached the sort of tentative uh, kind of, well, I thought it could have been a more dramatic conclusion, but they did, I'll quote what they said, with a looming copper supply gap, short circuit the energy transition, question mark. Well, the answer is yes. That's what they're studying. It will. There's not enough copper being uh, mined. Not today. Remember what we're talking about here is that only only a few percent of the world's total energy supply comes from wind and solar today. And only 10% of net new car sales are electric vehicles today, which accounts for a share of all vehicles on the road today of about 1%. But as in the coming few years, all the governments of the world push hard to double and triple those shares, the demand for metals takes off. In fact, the supply gap starts showing up in a year or two. Why does that matter? Well, you say, well, the market will respond. You know, the demand's there, markets will respond. Well, here's something else that we know. Again, this comes from the International Energy Agency and from uh, all the, again, all the sort of experts that follow the mining industry. And this, this is a fact that you can find using the magic Google machine. The average time it takes to open a new mine globally, 16 years. Yeah, some mines can be opened to five to 10 years. Some take 20 to 30 years. Some take an infinite amount, of, infinite amount of time, like in the United States of America these days, but average is 16 years. And that's true for lithium mines, true for nickel mines. That's true for manganese mines. It's true for cobalt mines. So here's the problem. Uh, we're going to launch a path that will increase demand for metals as I said earlier by levels of 700 percent to several thousand percent more demand for metals within a decade or so but it's going to take one to two decades before the first new mines can be opened to begin to supply that 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 that, that is a uh, a yawning gap is beyond obvious so you you might you might be thinking oh well just we we'll just throw money at it. Well, you can just throw money at it. Uh, first, throwing money at it doesn't change the average velocity for opening a mine by very much. It's just very difficult to do, uh, but it could shorten it. But, so the average from 16 years could become a decade, still a decade. And you'd have to start, assume for the sake of discussion that governments around the world grease the skids for miners, uh, which they do uh, illegally with bribery and so forth, and maybe fragile uh, parts of the world that is being politically fragile, like Africa and uh, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, and some countries in South America. So that you could, you can, you can pick up the pace. You can get things open in just a decade, but you'd have to be spending the money today. You'd have to be planning to spend the money today. And here's what we do know is, and again, this is, these are data followed by analysts in the, the shadows of, uh, of the excitement over tech and, you know, chat GPT and stuff like that in the shadows of all the excitements in the public space of where money is spent. We we actually know a lot about how much money is being spent and planned to be spent by the global mining industry. And what we do know is that the current plans announced and and financed or in any in any way, shape or form visible are about one-tenth the level of spending that will be required to even meet minimal requirements for the quantities of metals. Uh, that will be demanded by the energy transition in the next uh, decade or two. That is one-tenth. Not, they're not miss- missing it by 10%, uh, missing it by by tenfold in terms of dollars being committed to finding and opening new mines. So where will the stuff come from? Well, it'll come from where it's now being mined. Uh, and we, we we know something about that too. It's not being mined mainly in Europe. It's not being mined mainly in America. It's being mined elsewhere. Uh, there's been a lot written, said, I've written papers on this as well, about where uh, critical metals and minerals come from. For the United States, about 100%, 100% of 17 key minerals are imported. Not some. For 17 key minerals, we imp- we, we depend on imports for 100%. For another uh, two dozen plus key minerals, imports account for more than half of all of our domestic demand. Same picture in Europe, by the way. Uh so we we get metals from elsewhere. Uh, some of it's from friendly countries like my homeland Canada and Australia. A lot of it's from not so friendly places or from difficult places, from you know the Congo and Indonesia to uh, to Chile. Here's what else. Here's what's important though to have have uh, to have in mind uh, with relevance to the next decade. Stipulating again, it takes a long time to build these uh, infrastructures of both mines and the refining industries. That are critical to converting the mined ore into useful metals and chemicals. Just like oil, when you drill it, you don't, you don't use it, you have to refine it into gasoline or diesel fuel and other products. All all mined minerals have to be refined into their final product. So this is the key fact that it's becoming visible. It's not an it's not news in the mining industry, but it's news to most policymakers, at least to most that are talking about these issues. Uh, the vast majority of all metals refining for the critical energy metals, for the energy transition, are in China. In fact, uh, the share China's share of refining of copper they're the utter- utterly dominant uh, re- uh, global refiner for copper. They refine forty percent of all global uh, copper and nickel. They refine uh, something like two thirds of all uh, global cobalt. They refine nearly ninety percent of all global rare earths. They refine. About uh, 60 or 70% of all uh, global lithium, lithium batteries. The refining process is utterly critical to get the material in the form you need to build the things. Or put in geopolitical terms, China holds a dominance in energy minerals that's double OPEC's dominance in hydrocarbons. Let's think about that geopolitically. Okay. That was a good move on China's part. Obviously. Uh, It wasn't a hidden move, by the way. They announced the strategy uh, 20 years ago and 10 years ago. And we, America, just for the record, before the turn of the 21st century, the United States used to be the primary produce miner and refiner of rare earth metals is one example. Produced about 80% of the world's rare earth metals. I think we may may produce a few percentage points now, roughly speaking. We made the decision to not do that, not because we don't have rare earth metals in America. The United States is a very minerals rich geophysical province to use the geologist's terms. Uh, We just uh, drove the mining industry out of this country. We just, we are basically hostile to mining in a regulatory sense. So what will happen? Well, the demand, if we keep pursuing policies that require uh, the purchase of electric vehicles or subsidize them, require the use of windmills and solar turbines, there will be more of them built. And there'll be more demand for copper, nickel, aluminum, cobalt. And prices will go up. And let's, I hope I've made it clear that as the prices rise, the supplies are not gonna increase commensurately. There'll be some increase in supply. Miners can, on the margin, expand uh, current assets. The existing mines can increase their output rather quickly, but they can't increase their output by 200% or 300%. They can't increase that quickly. You have to open up new mines. So as demand runs ahead of supply, we're going to have a classic uh, economics effect that you you learn if you've done anything in economics, the first thing you learn, uh, it's it's called inflation. Demand runs ahead of supply, uh, price goes up. In fact, the International Monetary Fund looked at the price implications for metals based on the energy transition in a little notice study, one that I keep uh, pointing out to people in my writings and my speeches, is that their study did the honest work that any economist would do. They would look at the price, the range of price implications based on the uh, based on the demands. So what we find is that going forward for the next two decades, I'll use copper as one example. The price of copper won't go down. it uh, in a the most optimistic possible scenario, it only goes up a little bit, say 30 to 40%. It could go up as much as 200%. So we have a future where the, the price of copper, which is currently, by the way, 200% higher than what we enjoyed uh, over the last century, uh, the last half century, rather. The price of copper is already up a couple hundred percent. It's going to keep creeping up, and it could creep up, creep up uh, by as much as another 200 300 percent in fact what the IMF concluded was that the and I'll I'll quote them that the energy transition policies would cause metal prices to reach historical Peaks for an unprecedented sustained period of at least a decade that's called inflation and that means that the price of everything else goes up the price of appliances the price of regular cars the price of steel for building buildings the price of homes everything everything because metals are in everything and if the cost of metals, uh, only comprise, let's say, for example, 10% of the bill of materials, but if for it to build something, but if I increase the cost, the, the price of the metals by 300%, you could do the math here, that would mean that the product that you're producing will go up 30%. 30% increase in the final cost of a product is really serious inflation on those products. And here we are with the Fed trying to fight inflation, while on the other hand, the energy departments are fueling inflation. By the way, the uh, impact of higher cost metals will increase the cost of the green machines themselves in a kind of ironic feedback loop. How do I know that? Because it's already happened. Uh, Battery costs went up last year, not down. They went up because of metals costs. Solar module costs have been rising for the last uh, two and a half years because of metal costs. Wind turbine costs have been going up. You've been hearing in the press, the constant refrain that the cost of the uh, energy transition machines wind solar and batteries EVs has been collapsing and will collapse sort of infinitely into the future it's getting cheaper every day well they were getting cheaper they got cheaper for uh the last couple of decades and the rate of declining costs started slowing down uh four or five years ago and reversed uh, over the last couple of years because as uh as demand for these metals has gone up the supplies uh the suppliers have increased price, and that's because of, again, classic economics 101. And in fact, right now, the forecast cost of wind turbines, batteries, and solar modules for the next year or two are up. Now, some forecasts are showing going down after that uh, because they're kind of assuming that there will be a relaxation in the market, and some of these prices, which have gone up, it's like a commodity, they're going to go back down. It, you know, these are volatile commodities. There, there could be some relaxation of prices. There were was there, there was, in, um, there was a, a big price spike in nickel this year because of a, a trade that went south and uh, nickel prices went up several hundred percent and came back down at the end of the year to where they started the year. But the real picture that we do know is, is unavoidable is that there's not going to be enough supply over the next decade to meet these ambitions, which means the pressures, volatility aside, short-term volatility aside, are net up. And it'll increase the cost of the overall electric vehicle. In fact, here's here's a, again, we started with mining here. The mining, the stuff that we mine, the aluminum, the steel, the nickel, cobalt, copper, lithium, neodymium, that, that basket of metals, you can now follow that basket of metals as a cost of input to make an electric vehicle. So a few years ago, that basket of metals If you're an electric vehicle manufacturer, whether you're a Tesla or Rivian, it didn't make any difference, or whether you were Volkswagen, that basket of of metals that you're buying to make an EV costs about $3,500. So you have $3,500 of of just input costs for those metals. Uh, Last year, that basket of metals cost $8,500. So you had a $5,000 increase just in the purchase cost of the inputs to make one electric vehicle. That's pretty significant. That's not exactly a, a that's not exactly cost decline. So, so you could do have one of two things. If you're a manufacturer, you can uh, just eat that and not have you know just take it out of profits, start lose money. Which, by the way, uh, if you look at the underlying straight economics, electric vehicles and the price they're being sold for, uh, all the all the low cost EVs, uh, the manufacturers lose money. In fact, General Motors CEO admitted as much. Uh, in a in an interview last year, that they hope that by the next three to five years, they will actually be profitable in manufacturing EVs, the low end ones, the hundred thousand dollar EVs. Manufacturers, automakers, they make a profit. That shouldn't be so hard. Fifty thousand dollar, sixty thousand dollar EVs not so easy. They're losing money on a fundamental economics basis, and they hope that they'll start turning that into profit. Not because of economies of scale so much, because the metals prices they think will go down, batteries will get cheaper, and subsidies will continue. That's that's essentially the trope. I'm not buying it, but you know the fundamentals of the metals are what they are. They have another consequence. Uh, All that metals mining, the, the you know this. Keep in mind, metals mining means that you have big trucks, big machines digging up lots of rock and earth that have to be moved, crushed, ground up using lots of chemicals. You have to literally dissolve the rocks to extract chemically the minerals. Then you have to move the huge quantity of materials to a refinery and dissolve again and turn it into a, a, a derivative uh, pure metal or a refined chemical product. One car battery in a typical electric vehicle weighs about a thousand pounds and you have to dig up, roughly speaking, 500,000 pounds of earth to get the metals you need to make that one car battery. So one car you're digging up with big machines that burn oil and move the stuff and crush the stuff, 500,000 pounds of materials. You'd think that might have an energy and a carbon dioxide implication, that is an energy emissions implication, and it does. Uh, In fact, we know it does, uh, and and honest accountants are not just looking at the CO2 emissions from an EV being zero at the tailpipe, but they'll look at the CO2 emissions associated with an EV for just manufacturing the EV. And yes, you get CO2 emissions from manufacturing a regular car. Of course you do. And there's lots of data on this, not a lot of it in the public space, uh, a lot of very silly things being said about this. Fortunately, both Volkswagen uh, and Volvo have, have been honest and published studies at their own websites on what this accounting looks like and the reason I'm doing this accounting is not just that it's expensive to build an electric vehicle and to use uh, metals instead of liquids to move to move vehicles uh, is that the whole the whole motive the whole point of banning internal combustion engines the whole point of subsidizing EVs of course is carbon dioxide we want to we want to we're being told move from carbon dioxide emitting, conventional vehicles to carbon dioxide free or pretty much free electric vehicles. And yes, everybody knows that uh, you have to make electricity and uh, that emits some carbon dioxide in the real world. And there's a lot been written and talked about that fuel mix. That's important because obviously if you charge an electric vehicle in China, the odds are that you're using somewhere between two thirds, which is the share of their grid that's all coal fired to hundred percent coal, which is the share of the grid that's coal fired at night often in China. You're using coal. And if you're in Norway, back to my friends in Norway, the odds are extremely high that if you charge your, your EV there, you're charging it with hydropower, zero, zero emissions, pretty close to zero emissions, except for the carbon dioxide emissions associated with manufacturing the concrete to build the dam in the first place. But amortize that over the hundred years, the hydro dams last. And there's very little carbon dioxide emissions associated with charging an EV in Norway. But There's a lot of CO2 emissions associated with making the batteries to run an EV in Norway or anywhere else in the world. And those emissions are associated with a very uh, opaque and labyrinthine industrial infrastructure associated with exactly where the cobalt or the nickel came from, exactly how it got transported, exactly where it got mined. At the high level of abstraction, we do know something. Again, the world's mining industries use about 40% of the world's industrial energy or put in uh, relative terms, the world's mining industries today, this is before we expand it, use 350% more energy than the global aviation industry does. And we're going to expand the mining industry faster than we expand the global aviation. And more than half of the energy in the mining industry is oil and a huge chunk of the rest is coal, and then a big chunk of the rest is natural gas. Um, so it's a big hydrocarbon-intensive industry, and making, acquiring, and making, acquiring minerals and making batteries results in energy being used and carbon dioxide emissions. And so, what you'd want to know is, compared to the manufacture of a conventional car, how much CO two gets emitted to manufacture the things in the first place. Well, on the conventional car, we know precisely what the number is because the industry there is pretty transparent and there are far fewer uh, variables because it's mostly you know steel, plastic, stuff like that. Very little copper by comparison, very little lithium, very little cobalt, Very, very little of the opaque minerals, if you like. And so roughly speaking, five tons of CO2 are emitted just to manufacture a conventional vehicle. And then over the life of a conventional vehicle, it'll emit another 25 tons of CO2. So just have this in your head. About 30 tons of CO2 over the life of a conventional vehicle. Well, it depends on the vehicle, it depends on how far you drive, but that's the average. And that's sort of the kind of number that Volkswagen has in their study. The electric vehicle, when it shows up in your driveway, if it has a relatively small battery, shows up having already emitted 12 tons of CO2 before you even start driving it and charging it from the grid, which will also emit CO2. This is the, this is the, this, so given that fact and given the reality of how vehicles are charged on average. What that means is that you'd have to drive about 60,000 miles in the electric vehicle before you start to save CO2 compared to just driving a conventional vehicle. But by the end of the life of the vehicle, you know, 100,000 plus miles uh, of your ownership, you'll have emitted net, net less CO2 than a conventional car by uh, 20%. That's not nothing. It's not zero. It's not nothing. But, but here's the problem. The actual CO2 emitted by the battery to manufacture the battery might not have been 12 tons. It could be 20 tons. It could be 25 tons. In some cases, it could be even 30 tons of CO2 emitted just to manufacture the EV, which is to say, just manufacturing an electric vehicle in many realistic scenarios, not crazy ones, could result in in much CO2 emissions as a conventional vehicle emits over its entire life because of the mining and and the refining and the, and the processing industries associated with the key minerals. So you say, why don't we just change the chemistry of the batteries to solve that problem? You can, you can, you can, can. there's dozens of different formulations. Uh, again, IEA data shows that if you change the formulations, it does change the energetics and the costs a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, it, it does matter if you're a manufacturer, plus minus 20%, but the stuff, the kind of things we're talking about, it has almost no effect. You say, well, we'll make the batteries better. If you make a battery more powerful, that is, it has more energy per pound, you, you, you take fewer pounds, right, to carry the same amount of energy. So you need fewer pounds of minerals, less CO2 emissions. That's also true. But there's there's no new magic battery coming along. If we invent a new magic battery uh, that is profoundly different and better than lithium batteries, it will take at least as long to be commercialized as the original lithium battery did. And keep in mind the lithium batteries chemistry was identified is viable in the mid-70s. Mid-70s didn't become commercially viable to the early 90s and didn't become viable at scale for cars until famously Elon Musk in 2009, I believe, introduced the Tesla s sedan. So that's that's a long trajectory. Uh, So we're gonna be living with the batteries we have now. The batteries are gonna be built for the next decade are gonna be the batteries we know how to build now. And we know a lot about the metals and minerals. That's not gonna change by more than... You know, 10, 20 percent, nowhere near offsetting the thousand to five thousand percent increase in metals demand. And here's here's the the real rub uh with respect to this particular calculation of the future cost of metals and the future emissions of carbon dioxide from acquiring the metals and minerals and refining them. The average ore grade for all metals globally has been declining for a century, in fact, or for centuries. It's sort of uh, kind of an iron law of metal ore grades. By ore grade, for those of you who are not cognoscenti in the mining industry, the grade of the ore means the percentage of the rock that contains the stuff you want. So a typical uh, share of rock ore grade uh, for copper is 1%. That's sort of the global average. That is for every uh ton of rock that you dig up, right? You get one one hundredth of a ton. You could do the math here, you get pounds, right, of copper. Uh ore grades vary for depending on the metals, from you know tiny fractions of a percent to a few percent. The most the highest ore grades are for for uh um, things like um Iron, iron oxide is very high ore grade, which is why iron is uh, relatively speaking so cheap and relatively e- relatively easy to expand. St- steel is, uh, uh, of course, derived from iron and nickel, uh, but nickel has ore grades that are very similar to copper, and nickel has the same challenges. Declining ore grades mean that you have to dig up more rock and process more rock to get uh, to get the same quantity of final minerals. So over the last century, just roughly speaking, the average. Ore grade for copper mine in the world has gone down fourfold, and it's still declining. And the margin, the marginal uh, ore grades of the next mines, the new most new mines in the world, are below one percent. But here's something else we know: this is sort of obvious. If you have lower ore grades, you increase the energy be- used to get a pound of copper because you're digging up more rock. But it's not linear. This is it's just it's a it's a. If you might imagine, if you sort of think about it, uh, you know. A, an increment decline, you know, a sort of a 10% decline in ore grade doesn't, is not associated with a 10% increase in energy use. It's actually nonlinear. It's just the weird nature of the beast. If you think about how hard it is to, to eke out tiny fraction of things in a, a sort of an amorphous, uh, a rock. In fact, it goes up nonlinearly, uh, or to put it in the terms that, uh, the popular language of exponential. There's no exponential decline in the cost of energy machines. What there is is an exponential increase in the energy cost to acquire the minerals to build these green machines. This is going to be a problem. Uh, the energy use uh, therefore, and therefore the cost and therefore the carbon dioxide emissions per ton of copper, of nickel, of lithium, it's going to be rising for a long time. Not forever. By the way, I'm a, I'm a technology bull. I believe that the mining industry will do what it did over the last century. Over the last century, the mining industry has increased its production of all metals by an incredible amount and reduced the cost of metals on average over the entire 20th century. But In the early 21st century, the average cost of metals has all been ticking up. And the principal new variable, there's two of them. One is economic growth, that the world is bigger, getting wealthier. So countries like China and India demand more metals for all all manner of things. So that was putting pressure on the metals industry already. And I think that will continue to put pressure on the industry. But the biggest change is this shift to a tiny share of the world's energy markets going to very metals-intensive machines, wind, solar, and batteries, wind and solar in particular. So again, let's just do, this is just sort of arithmetic. If if I have shift only 1% of the world's energy from hydrocarbons, liquids, and gases to metals, wind, and solar, but that 1% shift involves a tenfold, a 1,000% increase in metals per unit of energy delivered, that begins to show up significantly in global demand for those metals. Or simplistically, that's like a 10% increase in global demands for metals. I'm just doing this sort of order of magnitude. That, that begins to impact markets. In the commodity markets, if you move demand by 10% on the margin, it makes, it makes a big difference. But again, I want to end with this fact. We're not talking about increasing metals demands in the future by 10%, which is what we've done in the last decade or so, we're talking about increasing metals demands for different metals from 1,000% to 7,000%. This, I, I'll This, go on record as saying it's not gonna happen. And the reason it's not gonna happen because it's not happening. It's not because it, whether it should happen or shouldn't happen, it's it's not gonna happen. It's not happening and it's not gonna happen in the timeframes that we're talking about. In the meantime, in the timeframes we're talking about, demand for energy globally is gonna go up because that's what happens in the world. It's what's been happening in the world for centuries. It's certainly what's been happening in the world for all the uh, industrial centuries of civilization as the rest of the world gets wealthier and industrializes. And as we invent new ways to consume energy. I think there's two factors for the future that will tell you why we're going to need a strategy of all of the above. We're going to need lots of windmills. There's going to be lots more solar modules. There's going to be lots more electric cars, and there should be lots more. I prefer the market and consumers to just decide how many they want, rather than policymakers and bureaucrats deciding which ones we should use. But set that aside as a political discussion for another time. There there are going to be lots more of all the above. In fact, we're going to need all the above, because not only will the world become wealthier, but we'll keep inventing new ways to use energy. We haven't stopped inventing new ways to use energy i'll end on this last sort of uh note of a sort of order of magnitude to think about that sort of let's bracket the world right we got norway uh the the aspiration of emulating norway in one hand we want the rest of the world to sort of look like a norway well uh norway is increasing its production of oil and gas fortunately (laughs) for the world that's because innovators everywhere will keep inventing new ways to consume energy. And we're going to need the oil and gas and the lithium and the cobalt and the nickel. We're going to need new technologies to accelerate the velocity of mining and improve the efficacy, both energy terms and environmental terms of the world's mines and processing facilities. And we'll 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 invent stuff that will require us to produce billions of barrels of equivalent more energy of all kinds. Look, pre-flying before the invention of the airplane, there was no demand for energy for flying self-evidently. So if you sort of benchmark from the dawn of aviation in the 1920s to the end of the 20th century, the demand for energy for aviation went from zero to about 3 billion barrels of oil equivalent. In this case, it's all oil. Computing, before the invention of computers, there's no demand for energy to run computers, none, zero, nada, bupkis, right? I mean, obviously, of course. Uh, But from the dawn of the computing age, which you really have to benchmark is essentially 1970, that the use of computers commercially weren't significant to them. But from that point to our time, we've seen the energy consumption associated with computing go from zero to about 4 billion barrels of oil equivalent of energy. Of course, that's delivered in electricity in the form of electricity and electricity globally, because this is a global phenomenon, is roughly uh, you know, 70% 70 to 80% uh, hydrocarbons. So hydrocarbons are fueling your computers more or less. So what will the future look like? Well, you know, drones and robots, which subject we'll talk about in an, in a, another day again. But if we sort of, uh, this is just me, uh, back of the envelope penciling it because, well, that's what physicists do. They do back of the envelope. Engineers actually do <laughs> real calculations, but back of the envelope, the drones and robots uh they did. They they're starting to exist as products, right? They're they're real. There were essentially none a few years ago in commercial markets. There's, there's are markets for billions of dollars already of drones and robots. There will be many, many more in the future. The drone and robot industry will be as big as the auto industry, and in energy terms, that probably means another four billion barrels of oil equivalent of energy demand, and that will be electricity in some forms. It'll be hydrocarbons in other forms. The cloud and artificial intelligence are incredibly energy hungry. There was no uh, computing cloud even 20 years ago. It's a very new invention of an infrastructure. And as I've said many times, you know, I wrote a book about that. But anyway, artificial intelligence is the most energy hungry form of computing invented by mankind. It's astonishingly energy hungry. It'll become more energy efficient as time goes by and will increase demand for what AI can do faster than the efficiency will improve. And as a consequence, sort of the cloudification of AI will probably lead to billions of barrels of, of uh, oil equivalent and energy demand. And that'll be electricity, of course. And we'll see how we produce electricity. A lot of it will be with windmills and solar modules. And a lot of it will be with coal in other parts of the world. And most of it will be with natural gas in the industrial world, I bet. My point is the scales of demand for energy just from economic growth are off the charts big compared to history. And the scales of demand... For energy, to supply new things we're going to invent, it's also off the dem- scale, off the chart scales of demand uh, in a future compared to the past. We are going to need, we are going to need wind, solar, batteries, electric cars, uh, to uh, take the pressure off the of demand for hydrocarbons. I just think that's just the practical reality. The political reality is it'll be an all of the above strategy that will make sense. But the bottom line is going to be that the Aspirations to build wind, solar, and batteries at the pace that the world is now on won't happen because we're not currently doing anything resembling the quantity of uh, plans or spending uh, or change in the technology of mining that will be necessary. That's just facts. It's not an aspiration. It's just the reality of mining. And we're gonna learn a lot more about mining in the future. Trust me, you're gonna be hearing lots more about mining of the good and the bad. The social problems, the moral problems, the corruption the, across the world and these uh uh very difficult political, politically fragile and environmentally fragile ecosystems from the Congo to Bolivia. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be an interesting education into mining. <laughs> We're all gonna become miners, not Norwegians, if we pursue the, <laughs> the, the, the energy path imagined by the by our our overlords in the uh, in the energy planning industry. So, that's it for my tutorial on mining and the reality as it relates to the future of energy in in uh, in the world and in America. And uh, I close with the standard admonition: you should rate this podcast. Uh, obviously, if you if you like it, give us a positive rating. If you don't like it, just don't rate us. <laughs> That's what everybody says, and that's what I say. Uh, I'm open to questions, as always, especially especially uh, ones that uh, are probing and uh, that have uh, substance. And if you think I've um, if I've got a fact wrong, please tell me. I'm always open to being edu- educated, or as to quote another president, "edumacated." about what's possible. And with that, until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last. Optimist.